go. Let's get into it, John. I'm in. I'm into it. Here we are, the Pink Smoke Podcast featuring John Cribbs and Christopher Funderburg. We're going to be talking about a book. A great book, just to spoil, yeah. just to bury the lead. Yeah, I feel like this episode is going to be like an unqualified rave, like maybe we've never done before on the on the show. What book are we talking about, John? Do you want to give some some set it up, little background of what it is, where we got it, what's going on? Very much so. This is uh, a new release. It's going to be a new release of a. Um, book that was originally published in 1977. It's being republished by Hard Case Crimes coming out next month. It is double feature by the great Donald E. Westlake. Next month being February 2020. Right, so it'll be available in February. Its original title was Enough when it was originally published in 1977, but it has been long out of print. Um, Hard Case has brought it out now with a new title, which uh, editor Charles Aday has a great intro at the beginning of this kind of apologizing, but making a very good case for why they changed the title. Yeah. Because uh, after you read this, you're going to agree with him that the title Enough does not really fit this particular book in yeah, any it's way. Weird. It's weird. They Hard Case always does like a little tampering with stuff like this, but I feel like it's always... They have a tendency to make the correct decision on these changes. Yeah, this is definitely the correct decision because the original hardback has kind of a cartoony cover with the word enough getting shoved back and forth. And so I can only imagine because the blurb of the original book also really focuses on the initial crime from the first story. I I just imagine they're trying to say like, he's had enough. And so he's pushing back, but it, it's not the tone of this well, book or this story at all. The intro also makes the case that the enough is somehow a reference or a play on Donald Westlake's previous book, Too Much, T-W-O Much, too, because there's two of them. Well, there's an invented two of them, but so too much and enough, right? And I don't even understand it in the context of <laughs> referencing the other title of that you know the yeah the bad pun of too much um so i think that double feature certainly uh makes sense again because both of these movies are about the film and movies both of these books it's a pair of short novels one is longer than the other uh the second one in it is is almost short story length um it's a pair of, of, of works about the film industry. So Double Feature is quite a clever title. And as Westlake's widow said, that it is very much a Don Westlake title too. It is, yeah. if you were going to fake a Westlake book, you know, if you were Donald Westlake writing a Donald Westlake fake title, you would give it Double Feature. Yeah, and he even introduces it as a two-reeler in his dedication page. So it all works out. It all makes sense um, that he would have these two stories that are unrelated, which you mentioned, um, but both deal with the film industry. Uh, So this is the latest Westlake that Hard Case Crime has put out. They've reissued a ton of great books. Most recently, two other of his books from the 70s, Help I'm Being Held Prisoner and Brothers Keepers. They're both terrific books. And, but mostly, I mean, the, the great thing that they started out doing was publishing posthumously unpublished manuscripts like Memory, The Comedy is Finished, and Forever and a Death, which we talked about on a previous episode. Yes, the so, James Bond 
script reappropriated for a non-James Bond novel. Exactly. So I would just like to just take a minute to just praise Hard Case Crime for their efforts with uh, Mr. Westlake's work. We're both ginormous fans, and these are books that you either could never, never could have read before or would have a hard time finding. So... It's just very and, and, the, and this one was so rare. This one was so rare. I just assumed it wasn't any good because it was so rare. I assumed it was like a curio and it's not. It's a it <laughs> it might be his best book. Um it's think, definitely great. Yeah. It's in the running for it. I think when you start narrowing it down, and obviously, you know, I'm a huge Westlake fan. My son Parker is named Parker after the Westlake character. Uh, and also because Parker is a good name. It's not just that I was that gigantic of a fan. And my daughter's uh, name is Honey Bazoom. Exactly. Named after <laughs> the stripper that Dortmunder loses all of his money to. Um, and yeah, and so I don't say that uh, kind of lightly, how how much I love these these two books that are both very different. Do you want to yeah. Do so before we before normally before we dive into the book in depth, we we give a series of pairings. We give an aperitif pairing for an artwork you should have uh, before you read this novel that we're talking about today. This pair of novellas, and to kind of set you up and get you in the right mindset or show where it's coming from, lay the groundwork in some way, and then at the end, after we discuss the book in depth, uh, we'll give you a dessert pairing, something to. Take take you out of it, uh, kind of a next step or a, a nightcap, something to top it off. So John, would you like to go first with yours? I would, sure. And I think uh, given that this is two different stories, two unrelated stories, I think that the best way to kind of tackle it for me at least is to have my aperitif be uh, paired with a travesty, the first of the two stories. And then my other one later will be paired with the second story. So I would say before oh, you read it, a travesty, um, Michael Tolkien's The Player, the book, rather than the Robert Altman movie. Um, also set in the film industry on the other coast in, in LA, where the you know Hollywood actually is. But um, like the story we're going to be talking about, deals with a man involved in the industry who commits a murder and then throughout the entire time is trying to you know weasel out. He's being blackmailed, he's being followed, he's paranoid. Has a very similar tone. The Altman movie, you know, of course, has some great scenes. And one in particular that this book made me think of was the one where everyone says, can we stop talking about movies for a minute and nobody knows what to talk about? Um, (laughs) Because it's a a story about these people who just, their lives are just so so involved in this industry that they really can't think outside of it. And as we'll find from this first story, the narrator is himself very entrenched in film and watching film and relating to things going on in his life through film. Yes. That's a, that's a great uh, pairing and both tone wise where the player is, is um, comedic without being a broad comedy, you know, that if you describe the player as, as a comedy, that's true, but it's not necessarily built around jokes and humor. It's not a detective comedy the way uh, John Candy's delirious is. How yeah, about that it's never yeah. thought of as a thriller, really, either. Yeah, even though it involves a murder and a bl- and a blackmail plot is the prevalent plot. It's not usually described as you know what a, a neo noir or anything like that. And they yeah, they both have main characters that are exceptionally glib and sort of unaware of their own glibness. There's the great the great moment sure. where 
Tim Robbins uh, talks to Vincent D'Onofrio, who's a writer who hates him. And he's really shocked to find out this writer hates him because he's always thought of himself as a writer's executive, you know, which is in the context of the movie, such a, an amazingly ludicrous uh, thing for him to be surprised by. And the main character of a travesty, I think, is in a similar headspace than that. I think that's an A-plus selection, John. Um, Thank for you. me... <laughs> Uh, for me, I, I, you know, a lot of these, I feel like sometimes I try and do crate digging or go off the, 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 the beaten path in some way. But today I said, you know what, I'm going for the low hanging fruit, read Dashiell Hammett's The Thin Man before you read a travesty, because a travesty is basically to me an updating and reimagining of what, uh, the thin man would be like in 1970s New York City instead of 1930s New York City, 20s and sure. 30s New yeah, York yeah. City. And they also have a similar main character who are like crime adjacent. And one of the funny things that happens to the main character in a travesty, which we'll talk about, is he sort of gets drafted by the detectives working his case to help them on other cases. And there's a very similar quality to, to Nick uh, Charles getting drafted to work on these cases that he really doesn't want to be working on. He just wants to retire to be an heiress's husband and not do this stuff anymore. And he kind of keeps getting pulled back into that world that he'd like to be out of. And again, it's they're, they're comic novels in the same way and that they're not broad comedy. They're not joke-filled comedy. They're sort of light crime comedies, I think, in a very similar vein in some ways. It would surprise me to hear that Westlake was not thinking of The Thin Man in any way when he wrote this updated novel. Yeah, a lot to do with the characters' lifestyles in this film. It's lifestyles, just... New York, uh, the world they're in, reimagining New York, updating New York, and how crime functions in New York, uh, high-class crime functions in New York. Yeah, great pairing. Excellent. Um, so let's get into a travesty then. I'm going to talk about the plot. Uh, at the beginning of the story, we opened with a, a dead woman. She's just been punched in the face and hit her head on a table by our narrator, Carrie Thorpe, who is a pill popping film writer and theorist. Uh, he has yeah. accidentally murdered her. I mean, she's, she's irritated him to the point that he has punched her and killed her. So accidentally uh, killed her though. Accidentally. Right. But still it's a horrible you know, yes. moment of violence Worse that we've just He's, joined but, in media yeah. arrest. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he flees the scene after taking what he looking around and taking everything he thinks would implicate him in the crime. But from that point on, he has several obstacles that he has to uh, hurdle. The first being a private detective who was hired by the woman's husband and who saw him leaving the scene and went up to the apartment and found the body and identified him because he left something behind. Yes. And it's important to point out that both uh, this main character, Carrie Thorpe, and the woman he's murdered, Laura Penny, they're dating, but they're both married but separated. And they both have spouses who are sort of, who are uh, gunning for them in some way, that their, their affairs are potentially going to be weaponized against them in divorce proceedings. So they're keeping their affair under the wraps and right. uh, oblique. And Carrie not only is keeping this affair <laughs> under the table, 
he's actually dating several different women. Uh, the other one being a woman named Kit, who he's kind of going back and forth. He ends up, he, he continuously describes his dates as, you know, inviting one of the women to go to a screening with him. And then they go back to his place and kind of leading both the women on by making it seem like it's not really serious with the other woman that he just has to keep up appearances that he's dating various women. He doesn't want to be pinned down. Yeah. For the reason of divorce. Exactly. That he doesn't want used against him that he needs dates uh, socially for these events and parties and screenings, but he's not serious with any of them. Although all of them, he's telling you're the one I am serious with. Right, right. That really establishes a lot about his character that he's basically, has, you know, presents himself in a certain way, and that he has lots of secrets even before he's, you know, finds himself in this situation where he could potentially, you know, go to jail for murder. Yes. And he's immediately blackmailed by a private detective named Edgerson who is staking out Laura Penny's apartment exactly for the reason of trying to get dirt for the divorce that the ex or the current husband, soon to be ex-husband has sent him there to take photos of everyone coming or going. And he happens to have a photo of our hero. Is hero the right word? Carrie Thorpe. <laughs> our narrator. <laughs> the person with which we are saddled and uh, immediately goes to blackmail him. Right. And Eggerson is so Joe Don Baker, in my opinion, that's totally who I saw <laughs> walking into that room, you know, the kind of schlubby corrupt detective who immediately blackmails him for $10,000 and wants it wet within by the next afternoon, something like yes. that immediately. So the beginning of the novel is this great kind of bit of comedy where, Carrie has to figure you out. You know who I pictured? Process. I pictured like thinner Sydney Green Street is what I was picturing for that. Yeah, sure. If you're going to go old school with it, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, so anyway, he's kind of dividing up his assets. He's kind of figuring out what he can liquidate uh, and then coming up short. And he has this absurd solution when he becomes so desperate, he robs a bank. <laughs> Yes, he puts on a <laughs> fake beard and some uh, paper towels in his mouth like Brando did in The Godfather to <laughs> distort his cheeks. And that's one of the things that's really striking and funny about this novel is it's really steeped in film stuff, is that it's very film-oriented and peppered with film writings and kind of makes up fake articles that people are writing, like uh, this article on porno for the Esquire magazine or the Third World Cinema Review, uh, people writing for stuff like that, and gets it, it, does it very well. It mixes the real stuff uh, and real references with made-up stuff, like he's going to interview an old director named Big John Brandt, and uh, who's clearly in the, in the mode of a John Ford type, uh, but he does a very good job, like, coming up with the fake names of these movies that Brandt has directed and things like that. Yes, like, and... don't eat the yellow snow. <laughs> <laughs> but there's one that's like a dog, about like a dog, that's like, that's like, shoo shoo saves the day kind of thing. <laughs> and they're, they're very good. And Tank Command yeah. is, is great. Uh, uh, fake movie titles that are very evocative mixed in with the real stuff mixed in with references to uh, Gaslight. The film Gaslight plays a very big role in this story that uh, screening Gaslight ends up being very important. 
Yeah, he nails the movie titles. He also nails uh, Carrie, just as, you know, a film, like an up-his-ass film writer who with articles with titles like John Cassavetes, The Apothesis of the Inarticulate. Yes. It's just perfect. Billy Wilder, The Smile. And the fake line from that that article is actually great, which is that... The one about the improv. (laughs) Yeah, that for how good improvisation sounds in theory, it's amazing how bad it works in practice. And it's and it's my God, that's so true. That's a very it's, true statement. It's incredibly true. No, there's a lot of great insight. You can tell Westlake is a huge movie buff that he, you know, obviously loves these movies. Although, as we were discussing uh, earlier while we were reading the book, he gets a huge plot thing wrong. About, well, one of uh, the, the characters Hitchcock. does. One yeah. of the characters gets the yes. plot of the wrong man wrong, and the film critic doesn't correct her, which is you know, surprising. Right. She uh, says but, that Henry Fonda is wrongly accused of murder when, of course, in the uh, movie, it's robbery, right? He's robbed yes, some that he's robbed stores. a payroll store, right? That it's funny robbed. because, yeah, it made me think of the bit from Argento's Tenebre where the detective, uh, no, the, the writer quotes the famous Sherlock Holmes line, which is quoted in this book as well. The uh, Once you've uh, eliminated the impossible, anything that remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Yeah. And the, the detective who's a Sherlock Holmes fan that uh, identifies it as the Hound of the Baskervilles. And it's like, wrong, that's side of four, buddy. And yeah. I've always wondered, you know, is that Argento getting that wrong or is that yeah. the character getting it wrong? Well, it's funny because I would believe Kit Mark- Markowitz, uh, who gets it wrong, uh, that he's robbing an, a life insurance uh, office uh, and not being accused of murder. I would believe she gets it wrong that he doesn't correct her. Yeah. I actually thought that's what he was, uh, what Westlake was setting up is giving this guy another chance to be a blowhard about what actually happens in this Henry Fonda movie and the Hitchcock movie. Yeah. Uh, and he doesn't, which surprised me a little bit, but that's a mistake I myself uh, used to make a lot. Uh, I had remembered that it was a murder he was accused of. I thought during the holdup he was accused of a murder um, yeah, it's definitely the kind of thing where if you haven't seen Wrong Man for five or ten years, you're going to misremember it, that yeah, detail. Yeah, especially because, like, what a big deal it's treated as, whereas in reality, you're like, eh, how many years are you going to do for a, a bid for holding up a life insurance company twice? <laughs> yeah, seriously. You'll get um, 12 and a half good behavior to be out there in four? I mean, save your dough. Don't fight it. <laughs> Take the plea deal. Plea him down. Um, so to continue with this, and I, we didn't mention spoilers earlier on, but in these episodes, we talk about the whole book. So stop right now listening and read the book if, you know, you don't want to hear spoilers. But Yes, and both of these stories I want to discuss in depth because the ending of both of them, both of these books, this is what I was thinking. They're so good, especially the second one, Ordo. When I got to the end, I did that thing where you just sort of hold the book in your hands, staring at the blank space below the final paragraph. You know what I mean? You read a book that you're not ready to close and be done with, and you just sort of sit there and hold it open. And it really struck me how long it's been that I've, I've done that. And I did that with both of these, where when I got to the end of a travesty, I sat there just staring at that blank space at the end of the page. I think both of them actually have the hard case uh, stamp of the end, their their uh, signature stamp. So I think I was staring at that logo, just sort of <laughs> thinking logo. of books, not wanting to, not wanting either of them to be over because they have such uh, impactful endings. I mean, Ordo, the second one from stop to start, um, is just so good. 
Yeah, it's we'll get into that, but yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And this one too, because this one has a great, the basic arc of this is everything keeps going right for him. The police almost instantaneously clear him as a suspect so much so that they start hanging out with him and asking him to come on other cases and investigate those other cases with them. And that gives Westlake the opportunity to do a series of miniature detective stories that are sort of plays on locked room mysteries and whodunit type setups. He essentially gives them three locked room mysteries to do a play on those. And also he gets it over on the uh, blackmailer almost immediately. So he raises the money and then switches it to the blackmailer to get his money back. And everything goes great for him in this book. And you keep waiting for something to go wrong with all of his various sort of harebrained schemes to get out from underneath this murder and all of the things that he's not supposed to uh, do and all of the mistakes you think, oh, there's the mistake he's being set up for and the thing just keeps falling in his favor. So when it gets to the final chapter and his fuck up comes back to get him, it's a really impactful twist to this. Yeah, and it's, and it's completely unpredictable too. what trip was ultimately going to be. I kept thinking the bank robbery was going to come back. Yes. After he's too. finally like cleared of all the murder stuff and he's pals with the cops and he is totally in the clear. Suddenly he's going to just run into the teller or something is going to point to him for the bank robbery and he'll get screwed for doing that, but it does not come up again at all. Yes. There's lots of ways that you keep thinking, oh, that's what's going to get him. And none of it does, except for the thing, one of the many things, he starts having an affair with the lead detectives, these two guys, Staples and Bray, who are great, but totally stock characters. They're very enjoyable, and the way Westlake uses them is very enjoyable. This novel, A Travesty, is an almost deconstructionist novel, and that's why I mentioned Thin Man as well, is that this novel is very much playing with the form, and playing with how mystery novelists maneuver you around a story and put you in place to set you up and knock you down. And it's so deft with all of this stuff. It just shows you how Westlake could do all of it in his sleep. And the way it sets up expectations and defies them and has you looking here and makes you realize, yes, I'm supposed to be looking here only to get you to, so you look someplace else, but you should have kept looking at the first thing. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Or it's, it's like... Because even the locked room mysteries, the little mini mysteries that he solves while he's with these cops are riddled with like Hollywood cliches of, you know, these kind of movies, these kind of thrillers, but I couldn't figure any of them out. You know, like I thought I that, only, you know... I only got the, um, the political assassination. Hiding in the ceiling. Yeah, because he mentioned, so there's three of them, right? There's a murder in a screening room where there's some people together to see a new movie and the director gets shot in the head. There's a political, and again, it's a locked room. No one came in or out. They have security guards attesting that fact. The second one is at the office of a small made-up country, Fredonia. It's Fredonia, right? (laughs) Um, Where the ambassador is alone locked in his room and the security and secretary are out front and he gets killed when he's alone in this room, garroted to death, right? 
And then the third one is a woman has found her body on the street out front of a high rise. It's ruled a suicide but one of the investigating detectives, it doesn't sit right with them. So they go look around the room and talk to her husband who claims he was drunk and passed out when she went and jumped out the window after they were quarreling. And they're locked room mysteries, each three of them. And the only one I got was the second one uh, in any way. And the other two up until the end, again, he sets up with the third one. And what I like so much is there's the detective Staples that he becomes friendly with, who's very much on his side. And there's Bray, the humorless one who doesn't like him very much. Uh, And he helps out Staples on the first two to the chagrin of Bray. And then on the third one, uh, Bray wants his help. Bray (laughs) says this doesn't sit right. And he refuses to do it, but you know something's up and you know he's solved it. You know our hero, Carrie Thorpe, who proves to be a brilliant natural detective, has solved it. And I kept waiting for what's the big reveal of how it happened, of how he knows it was a murder and not a suicide. And I couldn't come up with anything. I couldn't come up with anything for that one. And it's uh, really interesting. The first one, I obviously had no idea either because that one's that Westlake is playing the joke to conjure the solution out of thin air. He's yeah. making the uh, a, a joke on how these novelists, when they go to solve them, suddenly give you all this information that they hadn't give you anymore, given you before. They give you all this information they hadn't given you before that the main character would obviously be privy to, but right. you as the reader aren't. That's the slight hand. You didn't notice the frozen plants in the hallway. (laughs) Yeah, you didn't notice that he's tanned and he has a shaved beard and you can see his tan line and that his haircut (laughs) is different and that he's wearing, you know, whatever the other indicators were that we're not able to see because we're reading it and the book failed to mention it up until that point. But, you know, completely by accident, the um, woman who supposedly commits suicide out the window, I had just read a book about... Uh, Anna Mendieta, the uh, Cuban-American artist who was clearly murdered by her husband by being thrown out a window. And then they said it was suicide. He never went to jail, which wouldn't have happened until 1985. But it was just eerie with that kind of in the back of my mind and that crime playing out the way it did. In a way that says, like, it's so obvious that the husband killed her and yet they don't have evidence so they can't do anything about it. You know, it's just like, are you goddamn kidding me? Yes. How do you prove this? How do you right. prove it? And I couldn't come up with a solution on how to prove it. And that's also the other great part is that when he walks you through and gives you what feels like 20 different things to, to convict this guy. Yeah. It's like gives you a bunch of different ways to approach this crime. And like Al Bray, you're, we're all the lunkhead who can't, who can't <laughs> get it. Yeah. And the additional funny thing about that scenario is that he realizes how to solve the case. He realizes how to implicate the husband, but because it's so similar to his own situation, he feels, you know, or it's an accidental death that was covered up. He decides not to give them the information in hopes that the guy gets away. Yeah. And also wanting to keep his relationship with Staples with uh, open and right. Because Staples is the one who was convinced it was a suicide. 
yes and on his side Mm -hmm. and of course we have our hero because he's a scumbag his big screw up as he starts sleeping with staples wife and that's the one that's so obvious to me like don't do this this is going to be your downfall that it felt like westlake pointing at something too much so i started looking elsewhere he predicts it he comes out and says it himself in this amazing line from the middle of the story which is if you're going to commit a murder and in the first place i don't recommend it One thing you should definitely not do afterward is have sex with the investigating officer's wife. It merely makes for a lot of extraneous complication. (laughs) That's such Uh, a great Westlake line. It is. This book too, this book really hit close to me too, I think for obvious reasons as like, you know, a pretentious film writer in New York City surrounded by detestable sleazebags. No, surrounded by sort of like... (laughs) boring party types uh there was just something about this that westlake it feels like he's making fun of me in some way with a lot of this (laughs) that the main character is that he's making fun of me and one detail that just killed me in this you have something to confess chris (laughs) no i'm incapable of murder i'm also incapable of solving crimes i couldn't solve (laughs) two out of the three so i'm no carrie thorpe uh also no one is uh paying me to publish my work except for myself um no the uh that Thorpe, his ex-wife, gets along with his family and has gone and moved in with his parents who are taking her side in the divorce. And it was just so funny because my mom took my ex-wife's side when I was getting divorced. Like my mom is so completely on my ex-wife's side about everything that it was just (laughs) like, oh, Wes, like you just leave me out of this. Leave me out of this. I don't even like gaslight. (laughs) okay i don't think he likes gaslight that much (laughs) yes yes yeah that's true that carrie thorpe doesn't or westlake doesn't carrie uh but maybe not westlake either but i was thinking (laughs) carrie thorpe specifically since he you know starts making out with the policeman's wife during the movie i was also trying to decide if it was a joke or if westlake which meant the terminology he says that the first time they slept together the first reel of gaslight was ending and if he's showing reels on his home projector um a reel is like nine minutes to 11 minutes long Mm -hmm. so it's like the seduction to completion took less than 11 minutes is he making a joke about it (laughs) or is he using the more colloquial idea of reels which is more like 24 minutes 30 minutes or something yeah. yeah (laughs) <laughs> less of a less of a, a joke then but for a split second i was like is he saying this guy is last in six minutes because that's a pretty funny way of phrasing it to have him be like we had this intense connection and then the first reel ended it's like Haha, there you go so thorpe gets you know deeper and deeper into a criminal life as he kind of tries into to staples cover his own tracks oh waka waka because Eggerson comes back at one point and decides he's going to blackmail him. And again, I thought this is when the bank robber was going to show up again. I thought that Eggerson was going to say, I can prove you robbed that bank. So this is, aha, this is a new fresh thing I got. Uh, I like his blunt force tactics though. Instead, he's like, I'm going to beat the shit out of you until you give me the money. Yeah. Step one. Well, yeah, he just becomes basically just a complete tough at that point. He um, assaults him and then he sends anonymous notes to the uh, detective, to the, uh, to, to Staples, basically, so he'll stay out of it. He won't get in trouble for uh, clearing him of the crime, you know, ulti- which is what he ultimately does. Still has traction with which he can, you know, totally nail this guy. So he instead turns the hammer on Edgerson and murders him in his apartment. Yes. Right before seducing 
Staples' wife. So he has a body of a, of a private detective hanging, hanging up in his closet. In a like while, duffel bag. Yeah, while he is making love to uh, the, the head investigator's wife. Okay. So he has definitely, at this point, gotten a lot more bold as a criminal. Yes. You know, another thing I was thinking about that I think is an intentional joke on Westlake's part, how um, Edgerson gets into his apartment without uh, breaking the latch on the door. He, he installs yes. a chain latch, and Edgerson manages to get in without breaking the latch off. And With so, barely any effort at all. Yeah. So then it goes back and it explains in detail in a paragraph and a half or so how Edgerson did this. And I read it like 20 times and it is unintelligible. And I realized, oh, he's making fun of, there's so many descriptions in crime and spy novels of when criminals do stuff like that and you can't understand them. <laughs> this is like a crime novel trope of how they hotwire a car or break into a window or do any of that kind of stuff. And you, and this is something I feel like Westlake is intentionally making fun of is that you read it over and over and you're like, I don't know what the bad guy did there. I just don't understand what, what yeah. this spy did to the radio. I don't get it. And they're clearly describing a real thing that's done but they're like powers of description have failed them in some way. <laughs> oh, you know what? There are four mini mysteries. We both forgot about the murdered copywriter. Oh yes. The, is that the very first one? I think it's the second one that he solves. Yeah. Um, it's one I really like though. I, um, it's a man who was murdered at his desk and it's another locked uh, apartment type mystery because they have no leads whatsoever. And he has um, a, you know, a whole book full of, addresses of friends and lovers but what he's done is he's a copywriter who's sitting at his desk working and he's written this awful copy which includes which includes the phrase the peace of the beaches which carrie says that's awful <laughs> i love that moment and then um but then he talks about the distance between saint martin and antigua An antigua yes the yeah. capital which again is a thing like who would get that <laughs> who would be able to decipher that from it turns out that the incorrect distance that he mentions that being only, you know, right next to each other when they're in fact many miles apart is the, the reason that. And the correct capital is actually St. John and they go in the address book and there's someone named St. Pierre and that he's writing this copy as a note to reference this other person without exactly the same name, Jack St. Pierre. Right. Saint John. And so that's so Agatha Christie. Yeah, that so absurd like, a scenario. It's but great. It's, it, but it's so Agatha Christie. It's perfect. It's perfect. It's exactly <laughs> like an Agatha Christie book. So, uh, so it's funny for that. It's also funny that, you know, as a writer, you know, Carrie recognizes this bit of bad writing as a clue to the, yes. to the killer's identity. So that's so much fun as well. There's a, a great line that I forgot to mention when we were talking about the use of movies in this, just the way he describes himself as someone who knows more about movies than Sam Goldwyn and less than him about anything else. Oh yeah. It's so great. At age 20, Perfect. I knew more about movies than Samuel Goldwyn and less about anything else. And again, that was a like, you leave me out of this Donald West. Like at 20, <laughs> but, but what could have described me better at, at 20, John, when I went off to college, knew more about movies than Samuel Goldsman and less about anything else. It's, that's a description of me 
as a teenager. Uh, I think you're bringing me into that too, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly didn't know how to load a laundry machine. That much is true when we got to college. Yeah, I can't believe you brought up that detail. Um, but I, I love too the little things in both of these stories um, that escaped my you know film knowledge even uh, Vera Ralston, I only know is the actress from The Lady and the Monster, right? The Eric von Stroheim movie. Yes. From the director of Against All Flags, um, which should not be confused with The Monster and the Girl, by the way. Um, I didn't know about her doing half a dozen movies with John, the actor John Carroll, like The Flame, the film noir movie, and then the yeah. Western noir Surrender. I so, looked up the exact yeah. same thing. So when I, I watched some of those, yeah, so just to kind of get an, like, kind of an insight to this reference, so... Westlake, you know, beat me on some film trivia on these stories as well. Yes. And this also, we haven't talked about it much. This book really reminds me of Charles Williford's A Burnt Orange Heresy. More Huge. than any book I've, yes. I've read. If I didn't know better between Burnt Orange Heresy and The Woman Chaser, and you can listen to our episode on Burnt Orange Heresy, um, I would think Westlake was doing a Williford homage. Yeah. Yeah. If I didn't know that that's not what's happening here, but this book is the most, both of Double Feature, both Ordo and A Travesty are the most Williford-esque writing I've ever read, not by Williford. Yeah, absolutely. Especially just the connections between heresy where you have this cocky art critic, right? Yes. Who's, you know, um, intellectually superior over everyone, including the actual artists, you know, the director who he's interviewing. Yes, Big John um, Brandt turns out to be a stiff who only wants to talk about things that sound super interesting to me, but aren't interesting to Carrie Thorpe at all. Aren't useful for like a film, like a high-minded film magazine. Yes. Um, and then ultimately at the end, he's got to cover his tracks by murdering his girlfriend, who's figured it out. Yes, and sort of committing and um, committing crimes uh, in the name of furthering his his own career. Right. And I guess uh, in the case of, of a travesty, it's more just furthering his career to stay alive. That furthers his career to not be in jail. <laughs> to but not it, be, yes. It's, or it's bankrupt. the same semi-satirical milieu and tone as a burnt orange heresy. I think the difference between Williford and Westlake is that Williford is cynical and his books get quite nasty and despairing. And even when Westlake is nasty, he has that Elmore Leonard quality of never getting despairing, really. That Westlake right. is just not a cynic. Even when he's brutal, he's just not cynical. Yeah, even the Parker novels, I would say, are dark, darker certainly than the Westlake books, but they are certainly not soul-crushing affairs the they're way that some Williford's can fun. be. Yeah, they're fun, absolutely. Brutal but fun. And yeah. I would think that's the only major distinction I would have between a travesty and a uh, woman chaser, which is about a um, criminal who gets into the film business and yeah. gets caught up in the idea of making a passion project. Um, the difference, I would say, is like the cynicism and despair of Williford is not not present in these but otherwise this is it's the most williford you could imagine yeah oh absolutely and i definitely made the same burnt orange heresy connection i was surprised because i had forgotten when heresy was originally published 
and I thought, did this come first for a minute? But then I realized it was several years later. Although there is a reference to a Reader's Digest article that he reads, which is called New Hope for Dead People. Yes. And it's like, holy shit. I would have thought that was a reference had that book not come out years later. Yes. Yes. And it made me go, is that just a phrase I've never heard before the Williford book title, New Hope for the Dead? And then in here, is that a phrase that has existed that I never heard before these two things that sort of have this weird confluence of aesthetic, moral, tonal confluence. It's crazy. It was yeah. crazy. It's nuts. But yeah, I agree. It's definitely the most Williford of the Westlake books I've read, 100%. And it's fantastic. And so the big, big twist is that Staples realizes Thorpe is sleeping with his wife and in routine surveillance sees his wife going over to Thorpe's house, puts two and two together, and then decides to frame Thorpe for the crime he actually committed. And this is after Thorpe has, by necessity, murdered Kit, and then to cover that up, gone home, hit himself over the head. With an ashtray. With an ashtray, like severely hit himself over the head. Uh, to cause bleeding and then set up, set up the gas in his apartment to blow it up to make it look like the killer came after the two of them because they were getting close to him. Passed so. out and actually <laughs> accidentally blown himself up. Accidentally uh, blows up the apartment while he's still in it. Yes. And so after all that, after f- covering his tracks and being unexpectedly successful because you think when he's doing the ashtray and the gas, you're like, this is too desperate. He's not going to get away with this. Yes. He does. That reminded me a lot of Police Python 357 where uh, Montan throws the acid in his own face to get away with being identified. (laughs) Yeah. Reminded me a lot of that. Um, And it's also, I think that's a final commentary that Westlake is having on the nature of locked room mysteries and mystery writing is that you have staples come at the end, uh, plant the key that links Thorpe to the anonymous letter that proves he's the murderer. And what Westlake is saying is you can manufacture guilt any way you want. That at any moment, Staples could walk into any of these crimes and plant stuff on the scene to declare anyone the culprit. And I think that's intended as a commentary on how mystery novels are written is that Staples can roll up, that he Staples, Donald Westlake is Staples, and at any moment he can roll up and say, there's a key in this drawer you forgot about. You're the guy who did it. Masterful. Masterful ending. Yeah. And really, and really a gut punch and so well written because Staples is so ice cold to him in the cab ride. It's just great writing in that final chapter too. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Staples has been like his little kid brother throughout the whole book. He's been like just worshipful of him, bringing him along and asking him to help solve these crimes and, you know, wanting to come over and watch this movie with him and then being so trusting, (laughs) sending his wife over there and having to be social, visiting him in the hospital after he explodes himself. And not only does he plant the key, but he goes so far as to create an anonymous letter, just like Edgerson's that, you know, implicates him, you know, says that that's, you know, leads them to the key and coming to find it. So he's really 
he's really manufactured this evidence. This isn't just some random yeah. thing he decided to do. And in that moment, he becomes a cop. He becomes a different kind of cop in these that you encounter in these books. He becomes mm-hmm. the humorless man on a mission cop who has no time for your shit. And he immediately resembles a different archetype. And it's chilling. It's a really chilling moment. Yeah. It's great. It's a really chilling ending. And again, it's funny that you, it's sort of a talented Mr. Ripley sort of scenario where you're with this guy because he's the main character, even though he's just murdered an innocent person. And there's literally no excuse other than to save his own skin. I mean, you could say that. Throughout, throughout the entire thing. He never does anything even theoretically likable or charming. Right. But you're still uh, with him so much that you, you know, this is a, a downer of an ending for, you know, we don't want to see him get framed for his own murder. Well, it's interesting. It's, it is, it's such a bitter irony. It's such a bitter irony. And I think it also works by having the cop do a frame, which is detestable. Mm-hmm. That it works in that way as well, as far as manufacturing a real bitterness at the but end. Staples is willing to sell his soul. Over this. Well, you go, oh, wait, he never had a soul. This mm. was all arbitrary from the start. Yeah. All of these solutions were arbitrary from the start. Great. And that, and that, and that Kit, he has to kill Kit Markowitz. Our hero has to kill Kit Markowitz because she's the only one who puts it together. She's mm. the only one who puts all of the evidence together and realizes you did it, Carrie Thorpe. And it's because and, of a movie mistake. Yes. And they're also, they're also, she's the only looking into it because he's willing, the police are looking at her. They've become convinced she's committed Laura Penny in a fit of jealousy. And so the police are looking at her. So she's sent into detective mode. She's sent into Jimmy Stewart in the wrong man mode and uh, actually puts it together. Henry Fonda. I am going to be. What did I say? (laughs) You're absolutely right. It's Henry Fonda. What did I say? Did I say Jimmy Stewart? You said Jimmy. It's it's uh, it's uh, it's obviously Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda um, accused of those um, murders. And Vera Miles. Henry Fonda and Vera Miles. I was going to get Vera Miles right. God damn it! (laughs) I fucked up Henry Fonda on that. Isn't that funny that I was talking about how he fucked up the plot of it, and then I did. That's a dramatic irony. <laughs> well, you're going to get tripped irony. up like that because Carrie Thorpe, she could ask him, what movie did you say you were watching that the night of the murder? He says, oh, it was Gaslight. She's like, and then she realizes, no, you told me it was Top Hat. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Which he screwed himself over thing by be not watching. being a movie expert. <laughs> yeah. yeah. By not just be watch Top Hat, your life will be better. Yeah. This is good advice. If you were actually watching Top Hat, you won't commit a murder. <laughs> it is funny, though, that uh, he brings the, he, he just immediately goes to Gaslight, which he's been using the entire story as a euphemism for banging this cop's wife. Yeah. Like, we're going to get together and watch Gaslight again tomorrow. You know, it's just it's appropriate <laughs> that that's what trips him up is just casually saying, uh, Gaslight, that's Gaslight. <laughs> <laughs> So let's, I don't want to go forever. Let's move on to the second shorter and um, to me better uh, novella in this series. It's almost short story length. It's it's funny that, yeah. It's funny because when at the beginning of the episode you said Double Feature might be your favorite Westlake book, I thought, wow, I hadn't thought of it in that context. But what I had thought of when I read Orda was 
this might be the best thing Westlake has ever written. Yes. It's such yes. a fucking great story from beginning to end. And there's it was, just, yeah. it's just precise and there's just nothing, there's no fat on this thing. It is just a perfect thematically, narratively. It is just everything about it is so beautiful. And it's, and it's really interesting too. When I was reading it, I was thinking about how, you know, Charles Wilford and Jim Thompson and Patricia Highsmith are authors I love. They mean as much to me as any author does. And I think about their books all the time. If somebody said, is Jim Thompson as good a writer as Dostoevsky or Tolstoy? I would be like, I don't know about that, right? Mm-hmm. There's something about genre fiction that distinguishes it from literary fiction where I'm even I am hesitant to be like um you know Jim Thompson's as good as Cervantes or Dennis Diderot or whoever uh or or Milan Kundera or Carlos Fuentes I keep that separation from that when I was reading Ordo halfway through I thought this is as good as Hemingway isn't it Mm -hmm. This is as good as Hemingway is what I was thinking while reading it. And yeah. I would say of all the tones, I was trying to think of authors who write in a similar tone. It's as good I, as Soroyan, I would say. Yes. So good. Yes, without question. It reminded me of Hemingway in that it's terse. It's extremely masculine. It's um, sort of melancholic without sentimentality at all, which is a a hard tone to nail. Um, And it's really well written. I would say the only thing that the last page of it, it sort of goes back to its genre roots a little bit as much as I love the ending of it. It explains itself at the end in a way that I say, you just have to end right before there. And I could say this is as good as Hills Like White Elephants. You know what okay. I mean? Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that. Let's set it up here real quick. Uh, Ordo is the story of Ordo Topikos, who is a career Navy officer who narrates his life story. And right away from the beginning, we realize how important memory and identity are in this story because he, yeah. he introduces every character as their background, right? His The various backgrounds of each character. You know, I'm half... I'm, I'm this part Native American, this part uh, Irish and everything like that. Where people come from yes. is very important in this story. My father was part Greek and part Swede and part American Indian, while my mother was half Irish and half Italian. Both yeah. had been born in this country, so I am 100% American. My father, whose first name was Samos, and he goes on from there. St. Claude, who claimed to be half Spanish and half French, but later turned out to be half Negro and half Mexican, but passing for white after the divorce. You're absolutely right. This first few pages is all family history. It's almost like biblical recounting of relationships. It is. It's like a biblical recounting. And um, so Ordo is working in the Navy. He's had, uh, he's been married twice. They both ended abruptly. His first marriage was to a, a girl who told him he was, she was 19 years old. Turns out she was 16. So her mother has the marriage annulled and the Navy ships him off to kind of, you know, uh, avoid embarrassment right yeah uh to get him out of trouble and so he hasn't really thought about it much then it's now 16 years later and some of his uh uh, fellow 
sailors yes, are reading he gets a magazine. The second time that also doesn't work out. Right. Yeah, yeah. So he's at a point now where he's all, all by himself and he reenlisted, he re-upped into the Navy. His fellow sailors are reading a, a Hollywood magazine and they point out to him that his first wife is now a super famous movie star, like, like the, one of the most successful female movie stars of the time. He knows who she Dawn Devane. star is. Dawn Devane. He knows who she is. She's like the Julia Roberts of this world, but he never put together. Well, she's more like a Marilyn Monroe type. Mm-hmm. She's like an, a thinking man's Marilyn Monroe. Sort yeah, of I was thinking about she's that because... She's explicitly yeah. a sex symbol. Because they clearly said it in the 70s with the article talking about who is the new Marilyn Monroe. Is it Raquel Welsh or is it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Goldie Hawn. Goldie Hawn, Julie yeah. Christie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's clearly like of that era. But anyway... So he never knew that Estelle, this young girl that he had married when she was a teenager, after they separated, went on to become one of the biggest movie stars there. And it completely fucks him up. He just has, yeah. he just cannot He becomes comprehend. obsessed with the idea of how do people, how does somebody change into someone else? Yes, he could that's the recurring question that he asks himself and other people. And that's, and then he decides one day to just, take his leave, take several weeks of leave, go to Los Angeles and find, find this, try to get in contact with this woman and yeah. kind of reintroduce himself to her. He knows who her agent her. is. And so that's the inroad that he's going to take is go find Dawn Devane and see her again. And he doesn't really want anything from her, but this question of, I'm looking at the photos of her now. I remember what she looked like. I remembered what she was like. It's not the same person. It's not the same person. It's not just she's changed and developed. It's literally not the same person. Yeah. Anymore. And what's interesting to me is reading it in a Donald Westlake story in a Donald Westlake book paired with the travesty. I kept thinking this is going to turn into a crime novel at some point. Mm. And I think Westlake tweaks that. I think there's a few references where he says maybe it's somebody with a different identity hiding out. At the beginning, he wants to put those thoughts in your head, and it has the tone and feeling of a crime novel. But just again, to go through spoilers, it never becomes that. No. Yeah, they, they, you're right. He sets up the idea that maybe there is something going on that he's going to walk into and uncover accidentally. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but that's not it at all. It's, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's this woman that he knew who's now a completely changed person. Um, I got to mention that. Um, we had mentioned earlier memory, the Westlake novel that had was previously unpublished until hard case put it out. Yeah. Um, memory. I love memory. I think it's an amazing book. I can see why he might've been disappointed in it and really couldn't find a market for it. Yeah. But it's uh, the story of a man who at the very beginning, it's basically the reverse of this story because it's about an actor who loses his memory and then becomes a nobody. Yeah. He doesn't remember anything about his past life. And, and he's has like slow, slow images or, or slight memories, but he really just doesn't have his old life back. And it's all about him trying to rebuild this life that he had from scratch. Um, It's very, very similar. I think he probably took what he was going for with memory and really poured it into this story. Um, There's a part in this story where Ordo over here is a son in a diner uh, talking to his father, um, not getting his father's outdated reference. And yeah. he mentions that the father 
um, because it's a, an older reference and he, get, he gets irritated at the sun that he gets angry. And Ordo believes that the reason is that if you have a reference that's older, if you have a memory of something that's older, it's a mem- it, it's a reminder that you're going to die soon. Yeah. But a young person doesn't get it. Um, and then there's a, a passage about remembering old songs that he was surprised that he thought about old songs that came back to him. Yeah. That they knew all of the words to the songs that they no longer knew that they knew. Right. So there's all this stuff about, about memory and mortality that just kind of works into this. Um, so yeah, it's, I was really glad that the really striking, but kind of not focused ideas that he used for this novel memory kind of got really focused in this, you know, got really kind of tightened into this story. Yes. And it's a very longing, it's a very lonely book. It's, it's got an incredible tone to it. There's, there's no way to describe it better than that. And one thing I was thinking about too, when I, when I was reading it, this is my favorite depiction of Los Angeles in a crime novel. Um, And I am somebody who hates Los Angeles. (laughs) Um, even when crime novelists have a sort of cynical eye to Los Angeles, like Jim Thompson or Raymond Chandler, they have a tendency to still be under its spell in some way. And they're fighting back against being under its spell. Westlake is 0% under Los Angeles's spell. And he writes it very clearly. He writes the city in a way that's very, very clear and as unimpressive and depressing a place as I find it to be. Um, Because I'm not under its spell at all, that there's no magic to it. So if you go to this place and you don't want to be in the film industry flair like this main character, it's just like, this sucks. This is laid out badly. Everything's sort of dirty. Even the clearly expensive homes are one story and squat and unimpressive. All of the adornments of nice places are fundamentally uh, ridiculous, Um, but there's no fight. It's just a very uh, clear-eyed view of there's no appeal to this place. There's no appeal to these people apart from being rich and it being a fantasy life. And certainly as he gets drawn into Dawn Devane's world, he starts cottoning to the idea of becoming a part of it and becoming part of her life again in some way, um, which you know is going to end badly, which you know is not, uh, that this is not a happily ever after story in any way. Yeah. His description of the LA supermarket the people who push their yes. carts down the aisle oh and stand God. very straight and are sure of themselves and on top of the world. But when they lower their heads to take something off a shelf, they look very worried. Yeah. And it's always yes. off the discount rack. Yeah. And it's three in the morning and they're dressed up in super nice clothes. That was completely... And everyone is alone. Nobody's together. Yes. His description of the supermarket really, really reminds me of the beginning of The Big Lebowski when Jeffrey Lebowski goes oh, yeah. by... Uh, the milk by check or the cream by a personal check. Or it also really reminds me of the scene in Love is Colder Than Death when the gangsters are all dressed up and t- there's that endless tracking shot of them grocery shopping. Mm. Do you know what I'm talking of about? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just this ridiculous <laughs> pantomime of respectability that they're engaging in. And this, that moment in the story reminded me of both of those things where there's something fundamentally 
ridiculous about Los Angeles. It's a place that's so easy to see through. Everyone there is transparent. Everything is so easy to see through there uh, and dispiriting. And you have a character who's actually able to see through it because he's not interested in anything except for this wife he used to have. And he just doesn't understand what life is. It's a guy yeah. that's very easy to identify with because he has this moment that makes him go, wait, what, what is existing? What does it mean to be me? What does existing mean? <laughs> And because Westlake is not a simple satirist, you know, yes, he, he's not There's no satire to it. Yeah, it's not it's not necessarily mean spirited in the depiction of these characters. It's just a real not like this is just this is the way they live. This is how they are, and it's a very yeah, it's a very clear. Well, he's view. not under its spell, so the satire doesn't have any teeth to it. He's not fighting against it. Yeah. He's not caught up in a battle with it, certainly in this story, in this character. And again, he gets me with the Hollywood references. Uh, Conrad Nagel, <laughs> you know, who has a Hollywood yeah. star when he's walking down, uh, looking at the different names on the Hollywood. Oh my God. Did you notice there's the joke that these are graves with everybody buried standing up? Mm -hmm. Did you immediately recognize that joke as the joke from American Dad when Stan goes to Hollywood? <laughs> That's right. I had forgotten about that. I had completely forgotten about that joke until I read it. And I was like, wait, I just heard that joke somewhere <laughs> that these, that the stars on the Walk of Fame are gravestones and they have to bury them standing up because they're so close together. And I, and I know this ties into what disappoints you about the <laughs> last paragraph, but um, I just like that he, you know, had the, all these... Uh, forgotten stars, you know, yeah. you could name drop these forgotten stars, some of them probably with new names. Uh, I love the little bit about uh, the hotel clerk's picture of himself with Ernest Borgnine, which uh, is doubly yeah. fun because Borgnine was in the split, right? The uh, adaptation of the Parker novels. <laughs> yes. No, so it the doesn't. Hollywood stuff in this one is just as fun. The uh, the fake titles. Yes, for the it's movies. very good. Great. Uh, Tramp Killer, Bubble Top, The Captain's Pearls, which is about an airline captain with two girlfriends named Pearl. It's <laughs> just very like good. the kind of exactly the kind of fluff like a Hollywood. Yeah, like sixties sex comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's very much you can picture the Frank Tashlin, you know, or Pillow Talk type comedies being made that these yeah. are. <laughs> it's very easy to imagine Frank Tashlin's bubble top and her starring opposite Rug Rock Hudson in The Captain's Pearls. You know, and again, because her co-star is uh, is homosexual playing a straight in it, it's easy to think mm -hmm. of Rock Hudson. Yeah, absolutely. So he nails that again. Um, but what he really nails is Ordo uh, Topikos. I think it's just an incredible characterization. I love just the little moments that he has when he's sitting in the office with the agent and can't look this guy directly in the face. So he focuses on this giant picture of a horse. Yeah. While he's talking to him. And um, to bring it back to the Williford connection, you know who I pictured as Ordo the whole time? Tell me. Fred Ward. Interesting. I was thinking, you know who I, I don't know why, Batista is who I had in mind. For the Whoa, stars. really? <laughs> yeah. I imagined Batista and Sarah Michelle Gellar as the stars of this, if it was a movie. Sarah Michelle Gellar's great. I had no fixed woman in my mind mm. for Dawn Devane because they describe her as being all things to all men. So 
I pictured her as indistinct, like the photograph you hear later on. Is yeah. that she was almost uh, a blur in some way to me, that I never saw her in clear focus because of the way the novel never seems to get her in clear focus. Interesting. Yeah. It's, and even in, in, even his, de- in de- his depiction of her, who you think it would be so easy to make her seem like a horrible person, even though she throws around a few, um, you know, slurs and things like that. It's really just like, yeah, she's just, this is who she is. This is her personality now. It's the way that she has to fit into this life. Yes. She's never a bad person. Mm -hmm. which is one of the things I find most remarkable about it is that this somehow ends up being a very despairing book with no, uh, no villains in it, no bad people, nowhere to direct the pain of it. It's just the pain of being alive. You know, nostalgia. It's a book about nostalgia, right? Which literally Mm -hmm. means the pain of remembering or the pain from the act of remembering, right? Yeah. That that's what this is about, that this is about nostalgia. And so that's what this book is about, is about how it hurts to remember something that's completely gone. And for the woman he'd be married, that he was married to, to now be a ghost, a ghost he can't see in this new woman anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. Even uh, the depiction of their sex together, which is, you know, he mentions that, you know, they do everything that she's, you know, very, she's wild in bed and they both enjoy each other. There's still something about that's so rudimentary yeah. and not in a way that's not like because of the way they make love, but in a way that's like just because there's nothing in the story in terms of joy, there's yeah. no, no one does anything in the story to feel good or, you know, to be, yeah. to be happy. Well, it has that Williford thing where sex happens a lot in Williford books and you are never, ever going to get a boner from it. <laughs> <laughs> never in a million years. Are you going to be a good that blurb on the back of, of a Williford book from you? <laughs> well, you won't be like, that was hot. That was sexy. You right. just never will. With a even though but even though it's set up like this is sexy like you know he, even before he meets her he describes her looking at her in the magazine and seeing her in the movie as so desirable and that he's like yes. getting turned on looking at her but then when he has her there and is even saying like oh wow she really is phenomenal it's just so like yeah so if this is the best i can expect what can i expect from anything yeah it's interesting well it's also her life is probably pretty great and it would probably be pretty great for him to become part of that life. But that life doesn't belong to him and it doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If there's some way in which it doesn't exist in which Dawn Devane is not an actual person. Therefore that world doesn't actually exist. And I like when he's at Lenny Hacker's party and uh, the comedian comes up to him and says, who are all these people? Yeah. Says, you know, they're movie stars. And he says, looks like a bunch of bums to me. But I've definitely had that feeling where I've been at parties full of famous people. And you look out at the group and you're like, this does not feel like real people to me. Like, Mm. who are these people? In a way, when you go to a regular party, you don't feel like, even when it's full of gorgeous, interesting, sexy, successful, cool people, you don't feel like, who are these people? But if you end up at a party with a higher than normal amount of famous people, it feels false. There's just a pervasive, "Ah, I'm not buying this atmosphere to the whole thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's just a striking contrast to a travesty 
where you almost feel like, like, I mean, I think you're sort of overwhelmed by the unexpected, you know, uh, comparison of the two being in the same book. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's just kind of weighing on you throughout this entire story that, you know, now we were having, you know, much of, a bunch of murders and a bunch of blackmail, but I thought we were having, we're having a, good a good time, time here. here. <laughs> exactly. Son, why, what are you doing? <laughs> exactly. It's like, yeah. So just an incredible story, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I just, I don't know what else to say. I, I feel like just like going to everybody I know and saying, please read this right now. Yes. Read Ordo. Yeah. It feels like rush out and read this. I feel like anybody I know who's even mildly interested in crime fiction for the next three months, I'm going to be like, have you read double feature? Like mm-hmm. that's just going to be the first thing I say to everybody's like, did you read Ordo yet? When they say, yeah, I'm working. And did you read Ordo yet? It just feels like it feels, it feels momentous, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really does. And I just assumed it was nothing. I'd, I had always, that was one of those titles you gloss over and you're like, I wonder what that is. Uh, it's been out of print so long and it has a kind of like dumb title. Uh, it's got to be nothing, right? Absolutely. <laughs> two, uh, two novellas? Ugh. That means you didn't have one book and you had a deadline. But uh, somehow, and I had no idea, did you know A Travesty's been adapted into a movie? <laughs> Yes, I've seen that movie and I never would have put it together. Really? If I didn't, yes. Um, if I, because I, I went and looked it up and I was like, oh, a slight case of murder. That was made out of this. I just never would have put it together. Talk like, about I your also, bad titles. <laughs> yeah, but also I didn't know, I guess I knew this in the back of my head when I was looking up a, a slight case of murder and being like, whoa, that's crazy. At the same time, I happened to look and be like, wait, they made too much into a movie? That Antonio Vandellis Melanie Griffith movie is based on too much? That's right. That's, <laughs> that's impossible. I've read that book and I've seen that, that movie. That's impossible. <laughs> I think everyone would agree. <laughs> it's impossible. It's, they ha- it's just, it's impossible. They have nothing to do with each other. I get, I, maybe if I watched the movie right after reading the book, I'd be like, oh shit, yeah, definitely, no question. Yeah. But now, you know, 10 years after reading the book and 20 years after seeing, 25 years after seeing the movie. So what is it, 95? I saw that in the theater, you know. Um, or did I see it in the theater? I just rented on VHS. Um, it's definitely like, who the, what the fuck? And the same thing, what's like Case of Murder and a Travesty, where I was like, oh, it was adapted into a movie? That's interesting. Wait, it was that movie with William H. Muff- uh, William H. Macy and Felicity Huffman? Yeah, I had never heard of it. And when I looked it up, it was like, pass. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember it's fine. It's when he was still trying to do like Fargo stuff. You know what I mean? Where yeah. he's still trying to trade in that like, I'm a Jerry Lundegaard, you know, in yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, goofy guy in a crime comedy, dark crime comedy. Well, no, I'm in over my head. I just would have <laughs> never thought it's based on this book. Also, yeah. um, uh, Ordo was apparently made into a movie too, but that that was something. Uh, I think it's Spanish or something. Are you serious? Yeah, and I had never, I'd never heard of it. I'd never heard of any of the actors in it. Oh wow! Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Hold on one second. I can't even find the the title of it now. Um, 
Oh, yeah, it's just called Ordo. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's just called Ordo, and it was based... Lawrence Ferreira Barbosa uh, is the director, who is not somebody I recognize any of these film titles off the top of my head. Apparently, he wrote Cedric Kahn's adaptation of Red Lights, which is actually a pretty good... um, Simonon adaptation. Uh, yeah, I like that movie. And um, no, I don't know any of these actors. Marie Jose Croze, Marie France Pacer, but I'm not familiar with that. Also, just keeping on the same novel, on the same, when I was looking at Westlake stuff and I was like, wait, what? I totally forgot about that. Or I didn't know about it. I had no idea um, that Costa Gavras had directed a version of The Axe. Did you know that? I remember it was going to happen. I did. I think 2005 it. it came out. Yeah, I think I just completely lost track of it. And I couldn't my, tell you if it existed or not. That's my favorite Westlake book. Oh, yeah. Double feature. That, yeah, and, and that's yeah. like my dream film to make. Mm-hmm. To make a movie out of the axe would be the dream to do. And then the other thing I didn't know was that um, Westlake wrote the pilot for Father Dowling Mysteries. I never knew that. Yeah, and I was a bit, my sister was a massive Father Dowling fan. She would VHS everything. And so I watched a ton of Father Dowling and I always liked it. Uh, it's one of those things that makes me go, oh, all right, all right. That makes my, my youth childhood <laughs> watching Father Dowling uh, makes me feel all right about it for some reason. Makes <laughs> it was like a uh, trivia that I had not been aware of was that he wrote an unproduced adaptation of Elmore Leonard's Maximum Bob. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. It's always weird when he gets involved with other writers of his stature. Yeah. Like when he did uh, The Grifters. It's mm. always fascinating to see that that getting teamed up with those guys. It is. But uh, thank you, Hard Case Crime, for uh, republishing this book. It is f- so phenomenal. I'm so glad to have read it finally. Yeah. And I can't believe I, you know didn't delve into it earlier that I didn't hunt it down. Uh, but this is just, this is the perfect way to find it with this excellent new edition of it. I, I agree 100%. And it really is, this feels like a, a crime fiction event that this is coming out. So what could possibly be the perfect dessert to follow up double feature, Chris? There's a Williford short story called uh, the man on the bridge, which has the same mournful, tone as Ordo and it's about this guy who every day drives to work he's miserable he's traffic jams and he sees an old man fishing beside the bridge down in Florida because it's Williford so it's down in Florida and one day he finally decides to just stop and get out and go watch the man fish a little and talk to him and he's been projecting this idyllic life onto the fisherman, a guy who gets to live each day at his leisure, doing what he wants. And when he talks to the man, uh, it is not the outcome and scenario that he's expecting. It's a very short story, so I would recommend you read it. It's easy to get a hold of. Uh, I won't spoil it for you, but um, it's like Ordo. To me, it's about the life we create for ourselves in our side, our head, that the self we try to create for ourselves, that the fantasies we try to fantasize for our future uh, that exist inside of our head, that how it spills out into reality in ways that are 
uh, surprising and unsatisfying and strange. Wow. And that's kind of his Hemingway story in a way too. No question. He's doing a a Hemingway um, uh, nod that he's, he's doing a Hemingway uh, riff. Yeah. Um, I would recommend anyone after reading Ordo look into the delightful character Orko from masters of the universe. (laughs) I did think of him. Uh, no, I was. I, I pictured was, Ordo as wearing a uh, <laughs> raspberry-colored blouse skirt <laughs> and a wizard hat the whole time. I could definitely see Batista pulling that off. Uh, no, I, I was, I was really trying to rack my brains to remember, like, what's, what is this reminding me of? There's, there's a story about you know a, a man going back and, you know, trying to retrace like his relationships with women and kind of trying Ooh. to find himself and thinking like, it's not high fidelity. It's not high fidelity. It's not high fidelity. What I is know it? What it it's is. something more like this. It's broken flowers. It's the yeah, Jim Jarmusch film. It's broken flowers. Which is actually a perfect comparison because it's another movie where they talk about crime fiction throughout, you know, Jeffrey Wright plays the big crime fiction enthusiast who's his yeah. buddy and, you know, wants to treat the whole thing like this crime mystery and mixtape enthusiast and mixtape enthusiast <laughs> makes him a mixtape for the car ride. Um, but no, but wants to treat it like it's this big, you know, mystery or a crime fiction thing where it clearly is not. It's just this guy try, you know, looking up these old flames and then kind of either reconnecting with them or being completely shunned by them, but definitely has a, a similar air of existentialism, you know, that I think and melancholy uh, and melancholy that Westlake was going for in this, um, even though the ultimate, you know, the mystery he's trying to solve in that is, you know, which of these women potentially sired him a son? Um, well, he sired the son, birthed him a son. Which one birthed him a son? He sired the son. Yeah. Which one birthed? Um, so that would be yeah, my recommendation. A it's a selection. And I love and that it's movie. It's so obvious the moment you started talking, I thought, oh my God, broken flowers. Yeah. I just, for some reason, I was just helicoptering around it for so long in my Perfect head like pairing. what am i looking for here um and that's one of, a jarmusch movie i don't hear talk about a lot but i like that's one of like the top three for me that's, that's why i felt like i had to say i love it because yeah lot. it's it's one that definitely doesn't get brought up as much as some of his earlier stuff but uh or even some of his more recent stuff but i think it's definitely one of his best absolutely yeah very good movie. Very one of the best, best, absolute best uses of late period Bill Murray. I was going to say definitely his best one with Bill Murray in it, one hundred percent. Before late <clears throat> period Bill Murray became a cartoon. Sure. You know? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Hardcase uh, Crime, for providing this advanced copy of the book. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for publishing this book, as I've already said. Uh, yes. Go out and read it, guys. It is absolutely terrific. And go next and month. Yes, enjoy it. It's great. I was going to wrap it up too quick there. But um, next month, we should mention that we're going to be reading uh, Henry James's Turn of the Screw, an older genre story uh, than we normally deal with and talking about in conjunction with the new adaptation, which is it just called The Turning? The Turning. The Turning. They didn't go with the screwing for some reason, which would have been perfect. The Turn of Two Screws? I'm rereading Turn of Screw right now, and I forgot about that that part at the beginning where she's uh, like, uh, what would you call two kids? Two screws turned? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't think you're going with this. Uh, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to end with actually a quote from the book that yes. I love. It's from a travesty, mm-hmm. and the quote is, repressed hostilities, the world could use more of them. <laughs> <laughs> 
so good. If you want a fun uh, locked room mystery deconstruction, lighthearted deconstruction of crime fiction formats of the mystery format you have as travesty a picture of new york in the 70s as well of the intellectual cinematic scene in new york as well it's a great one if you want a really mournful melancholy thoughtful great short story you have ordo it's just it's this is an unqualified rave for these two things isn't it john two a pluses two a pluses all right Have a good night, everyone. Let your heart be open and your mind be utterly closed. Is that our new catchphrase? (laughs) I wanted the quote to be the sign-off, but that works. (laughs) No, but he said it was great, though.